Good morning, Zoe family. I, before I get started, I have to acknowledge the Reverend, Dr., Pastor, and Apostle Frederick Casey Price, who passed away earlier this week, last week. And I just want to say to the Price family, our condolences are with you to Dr. Betty, to Sister Angela, and Sister Cheryl, and Sister Stephanie, and Pastor Fred Jr., and Lady Angel. You know our thoughts, our prayers are with you, but it's not just from a distance because we've all been touched by the ministry of Apostle Price. And I have to say, if there was no Apostle Price, I don't know if there would have ever been a Pastor Ed, and there probably wouldn't have been a Pastor Joshua. So that's the scope of his impact on our lives. And listen, he's too significant to, for us to act like we're not sad. We're going to mourn this loss. But the scripture says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, you know, I was reflecting on a post, an uh, Instagram post from his grandson, uh, Alan Crabb, and, you know, it was touching, but he talked about one of the reasons why this is, hurts is because, you know, Apostle Price, you, he had the air of invincibility, right? I, he, he just, you, you know, every, everyone has to die at some point, but he seemed invincible. And what I want to say is that when people carry those qualities that we admire, they're really pointing us to Jesus, who is the person who is actually invincible. So, in his passing, I'm reminded of the invincibility of Jesus. I'm reminded of the fact that one day there will be a resurrection where we will all be together. And so I, I look to that. But at this time, we, don't, we definitely want to honor Apostle Price. And we, we share with the family in mourning him. And I wish I could spend my whole Sunday really talking about what he's meant to my family what he's meant to my parents. My parents starting attended, started attending his ministry when they were college students and much of what we do today. Listen, before there was Joel Osteen, there was Apostle Price. Before he was the first, one of the first people to have a Christian center, one of the first certainly African-American pastors to have a mega church like his on TV and sat down and just taught the word. The way we do altar calls, so many things were shaped today by the Apostle Frederick K.C. Price. So we honor him, we praise God for him, and keep your prayers for the Price family and the ever-increasing faith family. With that said, I'm going to pray and get to the word. Amen. Father God, I just thank you for this opportunity to share your word, and I just pray that you anoint my speech, that you anoint my thoughts, that the message you want to get across to your people would come across. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to be a steward of this revelation, and I just pray that people are blessed today. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Zoe Christian Fellowship, we are, there's one other thing I want to announce as well. I want to say as well that we normally have a men's conference. We had one last year, but this year we're going to join forces with the, uh, with Christian Cultural Center, the church that uh, Dr. A.R. Bernard and his son, Pastor Jamal Bernard, pastor, and it's a power-packed event with one of the headliners besides Dr. Bernard himself are, is Chris Broussard. There are a number of athletes and other kind of notable figures who are going to be speaking to us a timely message. So we're going to encourage the men to sign up for that. Um, the cost is $50 per person, but if you sign up with 
The church is $40 per person. We're going to cover the cost of the first 10 men who sign up. You can go to our website and go to the event section, and you can sign up. It's a virtual event, of course, but it's going to be power-packed, and we're just looking forward to God blessing us with that. So I wanted to share that with you. The other thing I wanted to share with you, actually, before I get into the message, is the fact that we want to connect with you. And, you know, the quarantine has made it difficult for us to kind of see you in person. And though we pray about, Bishop and I, about what we're going to preach about, we still want to hear from you. So we're inviting you to send in your questions about either the message that we've been preaching on or just questions you have about what's going on in the world. And we want to shape some of our responses to you uh, in some form or fashion. So you can send those in. And we really would even encourage also video questions as well. So just keep that in mind. We want to connect with you in that way. With that said, we're going to get into part two of this message. And as I said last week, don't trip, a Crip Walk tutorial. Last week, we continued our series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we will continue with the second half of Ephesians today in a series titled, as I said, Don't Trip, a Crip Walk tutorial. For our purposes, Crip stands for Christ revealed in prayer. No, I'm not going to dance, at least not right now, okay? I, like I said, I need a real tutorial to do that. But uh, we're going to be talking about the ways in which uh, how drawing close to Jesus affects our walk, right? So in the opening of Ephesians, Paul is praying for us. He says it in the end of that first chapter. He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And his prayer was that we would draw ultimately close to Jesus, to understand the revelation of who he is and therefore who we are. So the thing is, if Paul was committed to pray on a regular basis that we would draw closer to Christ, shouldn't we be praying for ourselves that we draw closer to Christ? And as we draw closer to Christ, that is the way in which we are able to walk in the way he has called us to walk. I say walk because Ephesians gives us three metaphors. The first metaphor is seated, seated. Right? It's about sitting, sitting in heavenly places, understanding about who we are in Christ as we sit next to him in heavenly places. The second metaphor is to walk, how we walk on the earth. And the third metaphor is to stand. And we get that in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to cover that before the end of the month and talk about how we stand against the enemy. But this focus right now is on the walk. Your walk refers to how you live. The first three chapters focus of Ephesians focuses on how we believe, but the second three chapters focus on how we behave, how we walk, how we live, how we act. At some point, our beliefs have to translate into behavior. Behavior. But you can't start with the behavior. You have to start with the beliefs. You have to start with how you identify. And out of that comes the way that we should walk. So to do this, as I've been doing the last few weeks, I'm going to have us read a portion of Ephesians together. I'm going to have a stand for the reading of the word. We're going to read Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And you may be in your house slippers or somewhere in your house relaxing. But if for the moment you could read the word with us, I'm reading from the ESV. Here we go. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, it says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. 
But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You may be seated. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. All right, so let's break this down. We're first going to look at Ephesians 4.17, and it says here, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. What does that mean? Now, this is interesting because Ephesians opens up by telling us that you are now part of Christ's family. You now identify with Christ. And then it goes on to tell us in this chapter that essentially you no longer identify with your old family. The Gentiles, the way they talk, the way they act, people outside of Christ. You have a new family, so you take on their behaviors, their thoughts, their traditions, and you no longer do the things that your old family did. If the tw in fact, this is very connected to the reality of the 21st century. And what do I mean by that? Well, if the 21st century has taught us anything, it's this. How you identify is a choice. How you identify is a choice. I'll give you, there's lots of contemporary examples, but I'll use one that's contemporary but a little dated. I remember when Tiger Woods was coming into his own as a golfer and a celebrity and what have you. And, of course, Tiger Woods is a person of mixed race. And certainly, to, you know, there are people who would probably just look at him and say, oh, you're just, you're just African-American, right? Okay, they may just assume that that's how he identifies. He certainly has uh, African-American ancestry. He also has Asian an ancestry. But he made a choice to identify. I don't know if he still does that, but at the time, he says, well... I'm not black, I'm not Asian, I'm a Calabalasian. Right? Okay? And it didn't matter what people thought about who he was or what he was, that was his choice. Why? Because how you identify is a choice. We live in a society today, certainly with the ways in which our modern concepts of sexuality have emerged in the 21st century. If nothing else, it's told us, it's told us that how you identify is a choice. You can identify all kinds of ways, but you get to make that decision. And here's the thing with this. Here's what's interesting. How you identify is completely separate from how you feel on the inside or look on the outside. We know this today, again, from the sexual, uh, modern sexual concepts that we have today. People make choices, right? They can choose to identify in a way that's consistent with how they look and feel, or they can choose to identify with a way that's inconsistent with how they look and feel. Either way, the identification aspect of it is a choice. We see it today. We see people who are, have various 
various kinds of opinions about America. Some people identify with their Americanness. Other people don't. I used the example of race earlier. There's some people who identify with a racial category. Other people don't. At the end of the day, whatever, other, whatever, what, whatever else anyone thinks of you, your identification is your choice. So check this out. Taking that principle into consideration, God says this, and this is what he's saying to the Ephesian church, even though they're Gentiles. He's saying, look, I don't care how you feel or how you look if you are a follower of Christ, you identify with Christ. You get that? Right? So, so, so same principle of identification. Right? If in the secular world, identification is your choice, the same principle God is applying. He says, I know you were born a Gentile. I know before you met me, this is how you act and this is how you felt. But now that you're a follower of Christ, your identification is with me. That's how you identify. And that's what Paul is saying not just to Ephesus, but what God is saying to the church. No matter where you come from or what your context is or what your experience is, if you're claiming Christ, your identification is with Christ. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's what's funny. Behavior is linked to identification. Behavior is linked to identification. Right? You ever see some people who, you know, in fact, this, this happens a lot even with little kids when you dress them up. Now, I know even sometimes when you dress little kids up, they start doing things that are disrespectful of the clothes they're wearing. But even with little kids, when you put them in formal clothes, they act a little differently. And certainly when adults do that, when you put on, as one pastor said, I remember uh, uh, pa pa Pastor Robert Johnson, he would, uh, he would come and preach here. Call, he would call him, he used to be an associate pastor here. He would say, he would call them our, our glad rags. You ever got your glad rags on? You start acting different. You walk a little different, right? Because you start identifying with the status of your clothes, right? Same with, you know, if you got a new car or a new house. Uh, you got a new opportunity, you know, there was a friend of, friend of mine uh, who, you know, he used to work for the Disney company, and he's an engineer, and when he, it was interesting, they were talking about his experience there. He no longer works there, but he was, you know, they were talking about how his, he got so much into the Disney identity, um, beyond what they were paying him to do, because certainly when you work for Disney, there's a customer service dynamic that you have to do, but he was, he was starting to feel himself a little bit. Right? There was a little cockiness tied to it. You know, I work for Disney. Now, he wouldn't say it, per se, but you can see the air of it on him. as he, The minute he put on his uniform and began to drive to work, he, his, his identification with the, the power of that brand began to affect how he thought and how he behaved. Well, guess what? When we begin to identify with Christ... When we begin to identify with the fact that we are royalty, that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ, it affects the way we act. And if our behavior is not consistent with Christ, it means that we have not fully identified with him. 
we're still identifying with our own thoughts, with our feelings, with the passions of the flesh, which Ephesians told us the passions of the flesh are expressed through the passions of the body and the mind. And there are those, there are those folks who have greater identification with what their flesh demands, with what their body demands, with what their, their alienated minds demand than they do with Christ. Look, actors know this. It's interesting when you listen to actors act or professional actors or really good actors talk about their acting experience. What's interesting is that acting, really good acting, is really not so much about pretending. In fact, when you see someone who's merely pretending, it looks fake. You can tell they're not very good actors. But good actors, what they do is they find something internal. They find a way internally to identify with the character they're portraying. In fact, what good actors will tell you is that if you want to be a good actor, you can't judge your character. Even if the character you're portraying is a bad person, you have to identify with them so you can act like them. And whatever techniques they use, some actors have internal resources where they will kind of find a scenario. If they have to play an actor who, a character who's angry or sad, they will find a place in their personal history when they were angry or sad and connect with it. Or some actors, for example, if they've never been homeless, but they have to play a homeless person, they might go live on Skid Row or in a homeless section of the city just to kind of get into the mind frame. Why? So they can identify with someone who's been homeless, right? So the same is with Christ, that we have to have identification with him before we can really act like him. And so when Paul is speaking to the Gentiles, he's saying, You're not, that's not your family anymore. Don't identify with that anymore. Why? So, so, so check this out. Going back to the actor example, an actor really has to find an authentic connection with their character. They can't be pretending. They actually have to find real sadness. They actually have to find real anger. They actually have to find real happiness. And then once they find it, the actions just come out of that place. They don't have to act like they're happy. They're just actually happy. They don't have to act like they're angry. They're just actually angry. Why? Because they've accessed a resource internally that helps them to identify with the emotions of the character. Good acting or action comes from pure sources. In the Roman world, as we talked about, adoptees had to stop identifying with their birth families and begin identifying with their adopted families. It's not like adoption today where, you know, you might still have a relationship with your birth family for whatever reason. But, but in, in the Roman world, because, the inherit, because people adopted kids primarily for the purpose of sharing the inheritance, they said, now you're going to have this inheritance, but what this means is that you no longer have that last name. You, you no longer are connected with that family. You're no longer tied to those traditions. You are now really my son. You are now really my child. And therefore, you must act like a member of this family. Let's continue. Let's go to Ephesians 4.18. 
So he's still talking about, again, in the first part of Ephesians, he was talking about who we are in Christ, our heavenly potter familiars. We use, that's the Latin term for describing the head of a family in the Roman world. The heavenly father is our potter familiars, our heavenly potter familiars. He has adopted us. And now in the second half, part of it is he's contrasting our present family with our old family. Because even though we've been adopted, sometimes we can drift back to our old ways. And he has to remind us, whoa, that's not how you identify. Let's look at Ephesians 4.18. It says this, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. I'm going to focus on that term hardness of heart, right? Heart, again, this is the status we have when we're outside of Christ. When we're outside of Christ, we, have, we are darkened in our understanding. We're alienated from the life of God. But I'm going to focus on this hardness of heart. He says this. Well, he said it already, but let me expound. A hardened heart produces spiritual blindness, isolation, and ignorance. A hardened heart produces spiritual blindness, isolation, and ignorance. And what is a hardened heart? Basically, a heart that's closed to God. And what is a heart that's closed to God? A heart that's identifying more with the flesh than with the spirit. A heart that's identifying with, again, the flesh. How does the flesh manifest? Through the passions, as we see in Ephesians 2, verse 1, through the passions of our body and our minds when our minds are not connected to God. Your flesh, our flesh, makes demands on us. Has someone ever cut you off? <laughs> Has someone ever stepped on your toe? Has ever, someone ever been neglectful or mean or, or impolite? Flesh want to do some things, right? It's making demands. It's saying, I'm gonna, I want to show them something with my, with my fist. I, I, I want to I give them a piece of my mind, right? Your flesh, is making, your flesh is saying, don't let them do that to you. But the Spirit, if you identify with Christ, the Spirit is saying, okay, let me look past their faults and see their need. Ooh, that's hard to do when they just offended you. But what does God want to do? He wants to reach them. And he may use the way in which you respond to them, though they offended you, he may use that to connect with them and soften their heart because probably everyone's always mean to them because they're always putting out vibes of being mean, but you're the one person they contact or in interact with that doesn't respond with meanness but responds with love. That requires the Spirit, and that requires us to identify with Christ and not with the flesh. Right? But we can't do that if our spiritual hearts are clogged. Spiritually speaking, a hardened heart is analogous to clogged arteries. No life. This next verse really gets into that with respect to the hardness of the heart. Ephesians 4.19, it says this, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Again, this is our status outside of Christ. Why is Paul bringing this up? Because he wants us to say, hey, that's your old life. Don't go back to that. D don't go back to that. See, we live in a, we live in a, we're, God has saved us and he's redeemed us. We talked a lot about redemption, but what hasn't been, but we haven't, what hasn't been fully redeemed 
are our bodies and our minds. And in other words, if they're not influenced by the spirit, they're still subject to be influenced by the flesh, which is why we need these reminders, because our flesh and our minds can still be influenced by the flesh, by the world, and by the enemy. So he has to remind us, hey, that's not your family anymore. We're your family. But let's look at uh, what Ephesians 4.19 says with respect to being, we become callous, right? What does it mean to be callous? To be callous means to lose feeling, right? If your body loses feeling, it is because your nerve endings are no longer communicating with you. Nerve endings tell us that if something is too hot or too cold or too sharp or, uh, and, and so that we won't get hurt, right? You begin to touch something and you, you notice something pricked you, you move your hand because you don't want it to prick you any further. If you move your hand accidentally on the stove, you move your hand because you recognize that thing is too hot. And sometimes things are too cold, right? You move your hand to where something's too cold, you move your hand so you won't get frostbite or whatever the temperature is that will affect your body, Right? So when we are spiritually callous, our spiritual nerve endings are not working. What does that mean? When we are spiritually callous, we can sin without sensing the danger. Right? So you have people out there, and they're just out there doing stuff. No qualms, no scruples, no inhibitions. They're just doing stuff, and they don't realize their hand is being burned off. They don't realize... They got frostbite. <laughs> they don't realize their finger just cut, cut off. Why? Because they're callous and their spiritual nerve endings are dead. So they don't know. Imagine having your arm in, 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 in some kind of sharp object where it's being sawed, but you don't know. You sitting there, you know, going about life, and your, and your arm is being sawed up by a bunch of saws, but you can't feel it because there's no nerve endings. You're, you're callous. You have no feeling there. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict, right, so that our spiritual nerve endings come back. And then we see what's happening, and we say, my God, what have I been doing? That's what happens when we draw close to Jesus. He opens our eyes as Paul has been praying. And when we encounter him, we see what we've been doing. We say, my God, why am I hurting myself like this? Let's continue, man. Ephesians has some good stuff. We'll continue in this passage, right? There's a quote I'd like to, to quote to put in context our next few passages. It's a quote from Benjamin Franklin. It says this. A place for everything and everything in its place. A place for everything and everything in its place. I'm going to explain what I mean by that and how it connects to the next couple of passages. Let's go to Ephesians 4.20. It says this. So he had already been talking to us about the life we have outside of Christ. He's, and, and then in verse 20 he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. That is not the way you learn Christ. He says the way you used to act or the way you may even be acting now, if you're acting in your flesh, you didn't learn that from Jesus. You didn't learn that from Jesus. I didn't, Paul didn't teach you that. God didn't teach you that. The Holy Spirit didn't teach you that. But you got people today who are attributing uh, ungodly behavior to God. 
They somehow have recategorized things so that, yeah, this is now good. This is now godly. Yeah, God don't mind. He's good with that. And Paul's like, no, you didn't learn that from Jesus. That's your flesh. You're callous. Your heart is hardened. You're so far removed from any kind of spiritual sensitivity, you think everything goes. And I tell you, that's not from Jesus. So how else do I want to expound on this? I, I want to I take you to another passage that is, that is further emphasizing the, the idea that people are putting certain things in the wrong categories. As Benjamin Franklin said, a place for everything and everything in its place. I think Jesus is saying something similar in Mark 12, 17, when he's asked if it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar. And this is what Jesus' response is. And I'm, I'm not reading the entire passage, but a portion of it. He says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What was he saying? Well, because what he did was he says, he picked up the coin. Before he answered, he said, he picked up the coin. He said, whose image is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Okay, we'll give him back his money. Okay, but what was implied in that statement? <laughs> whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? God's. So if, if we got to give back to Caesar the stuff his image is on, then you got to give back to God the things his image is on, which means your body. If you owe Caesar taxes, you owe God your body and your mind. That's his. And here's the thing. The world, science, Social science and even psychology is trying to make comments about God. That's not their area. Render to sociology what belongs to sociology. Render to science what belongs to science. You know, you got scientists who say, atheist science, not atheist scientists who say this, that They've done the math, they've done the research, they've done the investigation, and they've ruled out the, 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 the possibility of intelligent life, or, or not intelligent life, but the idea of God existing. Well, excuse me, that's beyond your pay grade. See, your area is evaluating visible things. That's what you do. When it comes to invisible things, that's not what you do. So, your scientific conclusions belong to science. You can have opinions about God, but your, 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 your conclusions about God aren't valid because that's not your area. Leave the invisible things to the people who study invisible things. That belongs to God. So when the world of science and sociology and psychology try to make claims about who God is and what he does and what God expects of us, that's not their area. God speaks on what God wants, not sociology, not psychology, not science. Let's continue. Ephesians 4.21, it says this, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, right? Assuming Assuming that, see, so first, in verse 20 he says, you know, no, you haven't learned this in Christ, but I'm assuming 
When, Paul said, when I say you haven't learned this in Christ, I'm assuming that you've heard about him. I'm assuming that you were taught in him and that as the truth is in Jesus, I'm assuming you have certain what we talked about actually last year, what we call presuppositions or basic assumptions you hold. The message I'm preaching here only makes sense if you hold certain assumptions about God, about Jesus, about Scripture, about truth. And if you don't hold those assumptions, then I'm not really talking to you. Unless, unless you're curious about what we're doing and you want more information to determine if Jesus is the God for you. I understand that. But if you're generally either, if you're not curious and you don't hold the assumptions, then this doesn't, I'm not talking to you. So don't get upset if I say something that is inconsistent with what you think is ethical or moral, because if you don't hold the assumptions, it's not applying to you. Let's continue here. Okay, let me expand, right? So, so the teachings of the Bible do not make sense if you do not hold a few basic assumptions. Assumption number one, God, goodness, beauty, and truth are all connected. God, goodness, beauty, and truth are all connected. Right? So it may look beautiful, but if it's not godly, it's not beauty. <laughs> it, it, it may look true, but if it's not godly, it's not true. One always means the other. How do I know this? If you look at the book of Genesis 3, verse 6, and you see the way that Eve is described as she's looking to the fruit as an alternative way to godliness... Look at how it's described, and, we, and we're going to read it in a second, and we see that she's connecting beauty, truth, and goodness. Let me show you. Genesis 3, 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's goodness, and that it was a, a delight to the eyes, that's beauty, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's truth, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, right? She thought she can get beauty and truth and goodness outside of God. That's not possible because after she ate the fruit, her and Adam, right, they were corrupted. They experienced spiritual death. So what, 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 what the Scripture is saying is, yeah, I got goodness for you. I've got beauty for you. I've got truth for you. Which human, what human being doesn't want that? What human being doesn't want goodness or beauty or truth, right? They're looking, like Eve and Adam, they were looking for it outside of God. But what God is saying and what the Bible is saying, all those things come together in God, but for us in Christ. Christ is God, but that's how God is revealed to us through Christ. So if you want beauty, goodness, and truth, you, you endure it through Christ. Which goes back to what I was saying earlier, when we look to other disciplines, Human disciplines, secular disciplines, and we appreciate what they offer about sociology. We appreciate what they offer about psychology. We appreciate what they offer about physics and all that we get from that. But when it comes to God, that's not their area. And only God is the arbiter or the decider of what's good and what's beautiful and what's true, and you won't find it outside God. It may look like you are, but it's 
temporary, it's not lasting, it's passing away. All right, so we talked about that assumption. Let's talk about another assumption we're assuming you hold if we're preaching this message. Biblical scripture is the only text with the authority and accuracy to reveal who Jesus is. I'm not going to expand on that because the last series we talked so much about that, about how the Old Testament and the New Testament point to Jesus and that we draw close to Jesus, certainly through prayer, but definitely through the word of God. And so it assumes that it assumes that the scripture, Bible scripture, is the way that we do this. So identifying with Christ means holding these assumptions. Again, what are the assumptions? That God, beauty, truth, and goodness are all in one place. And the second is that that's revealed to us in Christ through the word. Once you hold these assumptions, you're willing to disidentify with anything contrary to Christ. This is what Paul's getting at. It's not just about identification, it's about disidentification. When you see Jesus speaking, he says, look, if you want to gain your life, you got to be willing to lose your life. And he tells people, look, do you love your mother and father more than me? Your brother and sister more than me? Then you're not worthy to follow me. I'm paraphrasing, he uses stronger language, but that's the spirit of what he says. Do you love mother and father and brother and sister more than you love me? Then you're not worthy to follow me. You have to disidentify with who you think you were before you met me in order to truly follow me. Identifying with Christ means disidentifying with ourselves. Identifying with God's truth means disidentifying with our truth. And I know that's ruffling some feathers because that's a popular thing to say these days. My truth, my truth, my truth. Well, that's inferior to God's truth. And if you want to follow God, you got to disidentify with that. You can't take that with you. Jesus tells us himself, he says, you want to follow me? Carry your cross. Paul says, I die daily. Now, it may not be a physical cross that you're carrying, but spiritually, what are we doing? We're dying to that old self. We're dying to that old family, that old family name. We're not a part of that anymore. Why? Because we're identifying with Christ. Let's continue. Ephesians 4, through 23. It says, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, what does that mean, right? So it talks about putting off your old self and putting on the new self. This is is, uh, revolutionary. This is not the way Christianity is presented to a lot of people, right? that you can actually change who you are. (laughs) Oh, man, we live in a society that says you can't change. You're just who you are. This is your truth. That's what you are. The Scripture says different. It says put off your old self. Put it off. Take it off. Put on your new self. Right? So let's break this down. What is Paul really saying here? 
You know, he talks about your former manner of life, which is corrupt, right? Deceitful desires. Why are those desires deceitful? Because it seems right. We talked about highway seems right. Proverbs tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is leads to death. It's a way that seems right. Why? Because it feels good, looks good, tastes good. Just like Eve's looking at that fruit, she says, hmm, it looks good. It, 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 it looks like it's going to give me the truth. It has all the trappings of something beautiful, good, and true, but it's not. And that's the thing that gets you the most. Not the things that are obviously bad. It's the things that are bad, but they look good. Because it's affirmed by experts who don't put Jesus first. I am supportive of expertise and knowledge and science. What I'm not supportive of, of people who ignore the wisdom of Jesus and don't look to him to inform how they look at the facts. And unfortunately, when you leave Jesus out, you come to erroneous conclusions about truth. So what is this? What do we get from Ephesians 4, 22 through 23? Identification is about mind renewal. Mind renewal. Remember I told you, what does the flesh use? It uses the body and it uses the mind. So to take off your old self and put on your new self, you got to change how you think. Now, here's the thing. I pointed to my head, but actually that's not what I should have done because why? The ancient world believed the mind was in the heart, not the brain. The ancient world didn't know about modern neuro neuroscience and, and all that kind of stuff. When they thought about your, th your mind, they were thinking of your heart. So what does this mean? You become a new person by changing your heart. That's where you change. Who you are in your heart is who you are. Who you are in your heart is who you are. And if your heart is changeable, you're changeable. Quit telling God what he can't change. All he needs to do is get a hold of your heart. You may still look the same, may even feel the same, but if your heart is changing, God has access to you. The world says that you are what your body and mind says you are. God says you are what he says you are. Who are you going to listen to? Your body and mind, or are you going to listen to God? Your truth, God's truth. We become like God when our heart becomes receptive to, his, to God's word. And when I say become like God, I don't mean anything blasphemous. The scripture, in fact, we'll read it. Uh, we may not get to it today because of time, but it talks about how we are to be imitators of our Father. We got it like dear children, imitators, right? And so we can, and Jesus is our example, so he's our human example. We can look at God through Jesus and imitate God's character. All right. So here's the deal.
a lot of people, when they hear a message like this, they're, they're processing it. You're thinking about what I'm saying, but you're playing it out in your head. You're saying, yeah, I hear you, and I may even be convicted by this, but I don't see how this is all going to work out. You make it, it, it's, yeah, it makes sense, but that's too simple because of all the complications of my life and who I am and what I'm connected to. I don't see how that's going to work out. Here's the thing. You don't have to have it all worked out. You think that before you come to church, you got to change all this and change all that and stop this and stop that. Look, there's folks in our church today wrestling with issues of morality. They are. But like David, they are still pursuing Jesus. They know they're messing up. They know they're messing up. They know they're doing something they shouldn't do, but they, they haven't cut off their heart from hearing from God. And all God needs is access to your heart. Let him do the work. This thing is by grace, not works. Does he want you to behave a certain way? Yes. We choose our identification and we choose our behavior. We may not choose how we feel. We may not even choose how we look. But we do choose how we identify and we choose how we behave. Now, if you stay with us for the rest of this, of, of this series, we'll talk about how when we are empowered by the Spirit, Ephesians 5 tells us to be filled with the Spirit. It gives us the capacity to make progress. I didn't say perfection, at least human perfection. Spiritual perfection is not perfection in the human sense. It is God completing us, God doing the work. But I said progress, and that's what God's looking for, progress. Be better today than you were yesterday. You wake up in the morning and say, God, I don't have it together, but what can I do today to draw closer to you? And for some of you, that means giving your heart to Jesus right now. It means giving your heart to Jesus. He loves you. He, he wants to be in relationship with you. And some of you are sitting there, man, you, you haven't been in a physical church service in a long time. Even before the quarantine, you weren't in church, but you're listening right now. Some of you, you've never, you've never had a serious relationship with God. You've never had a serious commitment to faith, but you're feeling God's conviction right now. Some of you have been walking away from him, doing your own thing, walking like the Gentiles were doing in Ephesians, but you want to come back to him. I want you to pray with me as your first baby step. That's all you got to do. All you got to do is pray and believe right now. That's all we ask it. I don't care what you were doing last night. That doesn't matter. It's right now, you and God. Will you pray with me? Repeat after me. Dear God, I come to you now, and I submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is my savior. He is my master. Thank you, God, for saving me. Lord, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, shed his blood, and was raised from the dead, giving me power over sin, that I can live a righteous life. Thank you, God, for saving me. Fill me with your spirit so that I can live a holy life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is what I want you to do. If you prayed that prayer and meant it, I want you to type Zoe saved to the number on your screen. Type Zoe saved to the number of, on your screen. And there's a number of you who've been asking about, hey, I want to join this church. You know what? Put Zoe Say to the same number, right? And just, and just, and, and, and you can, we'll follow up with you. And whatever your need is, whether it be salvation or the Holy Spirit or you want to join the church, text 
Text Zoe Save to the number of your screen, and we're going to connect with you. And God is closer to you than you think. With that said, I want to encourage all of you. Thank you for tuning in. God has so many things in store for us. It's just, it's joy unspeakable. And so I want you to be encouraged. Enjoy this Valentine's Day with your loved one. A shout out to my lovely wife, Marcy. And I'm looking forward to this day, but to the love of my life every day. So I want to say that to her. And I just want to thank you all for joining us today. Have a blessed rest of your Sunday. God bless you.